Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. When we think of the Sermon on the Mount, we think of the message that is proclaimed. It is indeed a sermon. A sermon is a time of verbal instruction and explanation, particularly with regard to the truths of God, the Word of God. And indeed, Messiah gives us an explanation of God's truths. But a sermon is not only an explanation, it also has application. It also tells us what to do with these truths. What are we to do about them? How are we to activate them? How do we live them? How do we flush them out, as it were, through our lives? But a sermon is more than that. A sermon indeed instructs us, and then it helps us to apply it. But it also is a developed idea. There's a beginning point, and there is a development that goes on, and there's an ending point. And indeed, the climax of the sermon is found at the very end of what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. That we are to build our lives on the proper foundations. For if we build on lives, our lives on a foundation that cannot stand the test of, and challenges that we face then we will be like a house that is built on sand that will crumble under the challenges and trials that we face. But if we build our lives on the solid foundation of the teaching of God's word, then we will be enabled to stand when it is challenging and difficult to stand. But the Sermon on the Mount is not only a message Messiah brings. The Sermon on the Mount is actually the one bringing the message. He is the Sermon on the Mount. For if you look at chapter 5, just these beginning words, if we're to ask, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, Yeshua knew what it was to be poor in spirit. He was not poor in spirit in the sense that you and I are. He is indeed certainly rich in spirit, but he took upon our poverty and he knew our weaknesses and he knew our limitations and he knew most importantly our need. If there is anyone who understands what it means to be poverty of spirit, Yeshua knew exactly what that meant for that is why he came into our world. If we're wondering, what does it mean to mourn? We know Yeshua knew how to mourn. When we read of the death of Lazarus, it says Yeshua 
wept. And the word for weeping there is he wept bitterly. There's all kinds of discussions with regard to what did he weep over. Did he weep over the loss of his friend at this time? Did he weep over the lack of faith of those who are around him that were about to see an incredible miracle as Lazarus would come forth from the grave? Whatever the cause of the weeping, it was intense. And he understood what it was to mourn. On the cross, he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we're to ask ourselves, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, Yeshua knew what it was to hunger and thirst for righteousness because every morning before the break of day, he got up early in the day to pray because he hungered and thirsted for the word and will of God. And that's why he would say, I came not into the world to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could pray, not my will be done, but your will be done. Because he hungered and thirsted for the righteousness of God. As he desired and determined and dedicated and devoted himself to doing the will of the one who sent him. If we want to ask the question, what does it mean to be merciful? Yeshua is the most merciful of merciful ones. When some would come and cry out unto him, O son of David, have mercy on me. The Lord would have mercy on that individual. Whether it was need for the forgiveness of sin, Messiah forgave that sin. It was the need to be released from some oppressive element, be it a physical limitation or a spiritual one. He was there to release the captives and set them free. Why? Because he was merciful in every way. If we want to know what it means to be a peacemaker, we look at Messiah. For he's the one who enables us to have peace with God. He's the one who enables us to have peace within ourselves. He's the one who is Sar Shalom, the prince, the ruler of peace and of peacefulness. And so when we think of the Sermon on the Mount, we think of this message he delivers, but we ought to think of him who is the living Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's another neat thing about this for me, and that is when I first came to faith when I was 17 years old, back in 19... 71 or 72. Now I'm losing track. What year was it? I believe it was 71. But when I came to faith back then, it was because an individual had given me the word of God. He had given me the scriptures, challenged me to read about Yeshua for myself. He didn't say Yeshua back then. He said Jesus. But I knew who he was talking about, even if he had said Yeshua. But he wanted me to read about him for myself. And not just to think about the things that were said about him to me from one source or another. And what I found as I began to read the Brit Tadashah for the first time, and for me it was the Gospel of Matthew, where I want to spend some time uh, with you all in. I found God's Word to do three things. As I was thinking back how God's Word impacted me, it was these three things that struck me. I would not have known these words to describe them back then. But now as I think back, 
These are the things that struck me. First of all, the word of God was compelling. It lured me in. Once I started reading, I couldn't stop. I couldn't put it down. Now, I always loved to read when I was growing up as a young person. It wasn't always easy to read, but once I got the hang of it, I fell in love with reading. I was sharing with Dan Rifkin. I said, hey, Dan, have you come across, as he works in a pawn shop, you know, a high-end type pawn shop, and I'm always asking him what kind of sports memorabilia came through your corridors, and if he can share with me some of those things, he does. So the other day I wrote him, I said, Dan, have you ever seen a Hannes Wagner baseball card. Now, Hannes Wagner, the reason I think of him was because when I was growing up, I remember going into the library in my school and taking out this orange colored book that was the biography of Hannes Wagner. Hannes Wagner played for the Pittsburgh Pirates back in the 1908s, 1906s, Hall of Famer, and has, has become what is considered the greatest shortstop of all time. Now, I know there are some Derek Jeter fans here. I got it. I know all about it. But Hannes Wagner's baseball card is the most expensive and valuable baseball card worth hundreds and hundreds, I think maybe even millions of dollars. There's so few of them that are in the right kind of condition. Now, I say that because when I started reading the book, I started getting into reading. And from that point on to the present, I love to read. I wish I just had more time to just sit down and just keep reading and enjoying, you know, the things that have been written in print. So when my friend gave me a Bible, there was an aversion being raised Jewish. I don't know if I want to read the New Testament, but once I started reading, it was so compelling. It just lured me in. When I look at the Sermon on the Mount, I find it to be compelling writing, compelling message that Matthew relates to us. Who does not want to inherit the kingdom of heaven? I'd I'd like that, you know. If I could enter the kingdom of heaven, that would be a good thing. Who wouldn't want to be an inheritor of the earth? Who wouldn't want to be uh, shown mercy? Who wouldn't want to be called sons, daughters, children of God? All these things sort of were, and many others, began to just compel me and lure me in. As I was reading about the prophecies that Messiah fulfilled, it drew me in. It was compelling me to come alongside of him. The Spirit of God was working on my heart, and I could resist, I could fight this thing that was going on, but the compelling work of the Spirit of God through His Word was so overwhelming that every night under my covers at bed with a flashlight so my parents wouldn't know what I was doing, I would be there reading the Brit Hadashah. But I found that not only was it compelling, And it was luring me in, but it was very convicting. There were so many things said here that just was not me. When the scripture would say, just looking at these beatitudes, being poor in spirit, I was rich in pride. And though a young person, I thought I was really someone when I was no one at all. I thought that I was somebody with talent and ability and I wasn't that at all. When I read here and I began to begin to become convicted, I was not very merciful. I looked out for number one. 
I was not a peacemaker. If I saw that there was conflict, more often than not, I'd jump in on the side of somebody, and usually that person was bigger and stronger than the other person. But I was not a peacemaker looking to reconcile anything, but to just avoid being hurt in the fray. And the words of Messiah began to convict me to no end. I remember often I would try to match wits with Messiah. And I would read and he would, you know, debate with the leaders of his day. And I'd close the Bible and I wonder what I would say. And invariably, whatever I would say, it would never be what he would say. It was never even close to what he would say. And I never forget when I read about a one who came to him and said, is it right to pay tribute to Caesar? Well, the answer is either yes or no. I had a 50% chance of at least guessing the right answer. And I would say, of course, you have to pay your taxes. Yes. And then I'd open the Bible and it says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and render to the things to God that are God's. As I just never could seem to match wits with them and the conviction was settling in. And then as I looked more hardly at or more seriously at my own heart and my own soul and my own actions, I began to realize what great need I was in. And so God's word was compelling, but it was also convicting. But then at the outset, at the end of it all, it really became very consoling as well. Come unto me, all you are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, it's such an interesting passage. He says, and I don't know how one does this, but he does say this. uh, Do not worry about your life. Well, I just don't know what that means. <laughs> you know? Don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, where you will live. Your life is more important to God than any of those things, and yet those are the things we worry about. Yeshua tells us, don't do that. Just stop. And so it became very consoling that there really were answers to the challenges of life. So I want to draw our attention to this section because it has meant so much to me in the past. I want it to mean as much to me in the present in what the remainder of my life uh, is and will be. Now here's another neat thing. And only really, this is so, this is new stuff for me. So I'm finding this to be really invigorating to learn this. Check this out. In Matthew chapter 4, it says when, verse 12, when Yeshua heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah said, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. I believe this is Isaiah chapter 10 or so. The the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Get this phrase. Verse 17. From that time on, Yeshua began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven as that is at hand. Now turn to Matthew chapter 16 and check this out. In Matthew chapter 16, looking at verse 21, 
But before we get to verse 21, look at verse 17. This is that wonderful passage where the disciples are at Caesarea Philippi, the northern region of the land of Israel. And Yeshua says, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, you can't get it any better than that. And in verse 17, Yeshua says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my congregation, my church, my ecclesia, my called out ones, those from among Jews and Gentiles who embrace Yeshua as Messiah, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and wherever, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Get verse 21. From that time on, Yeshua began to explain to his disciples. These two phrases are very critical to Matthew's writing. Back in chapter 4, verse 17, from that time on. And then in chapter 16, verse 21, from that time on. This is, I think, this is Matthew's way of dividing up the book of Matthew. There are three major sections. There are different ways you could divide it, I suppose. But these phrases indicate to me that perhaps one way is three sections to the Gospel of Matthew. The first section is found in chapters 1 through 4. What does that section tell us about Messiah? Because remember, Matthew starts by saying the genealogy of the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And these first four chapters reveal to us that the one born in Bethlehem, Yeshua of Nazareth, is the king of Israel. That's what those first four chapters are telling us. Chapter 1, David is central figure. Notice it says in verse 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you and I were writing that, we would have said the son of Abraham, the son of David. Why? Because Abraham is before David. But he doesn't. He says the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why? Because Matthew wants us to realize this is the son of David. He'll give us his genealogy, but that's not his concern. The concern of his genealogy is to demonstrate he's Israel's king. And this is, is emphasized in a variety of ways. First of all, notice David is central in the genealogy. Look at verse 17. Fourteen generations from Abraham to David. Fourteen generations from David to Babylon. David is right in the heart and soul of the genealogy. He's center. Why? Because we're to know Messiah is the son of David. Notice this. This is something I just realized when I was reading this for this morning. But look at chapter 1, verse 20. But after he had considered this, that is Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. That's very peculiar because if you look at verse 16, Joseph is not the son of David, but he's the son of Jacob. Jacob is his father, his immediate father. So when the angel addresses Joseph, he doesn't say, hey, Joseph, son of Jacob, which would be the normal way, just like we say Yeshua, the son of Yosef, the son of Joseph, his father. But the angel addresses him as the son of David. 
Why? Because the one whom he will adopt as his own son will be the promised king of Israel, the son of David. That's why in chapter 2, when the Magi come, they say, where is he who is born to Israel? No, he says, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And they say, in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? It's David's hometown and village where they needed to be due to the Roman census. When you look at chapter 3 and Messiah's herald is introduced, look at his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does he mean? The king is on the scene. And so chapters 1 to 4, 1 to 4 and a half, 4 to 16, introduces us to Messiah who is the king of Israel. It breaks at chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, But when from that time on, Yeshua began to preach. And it takes us to chapter 15. And that section is about the message and work of the Messianic king. In that section, we have his teachings. We have his parables. We have his miracles that authenticate the claim made in chapters 1 to 4 that this is Israel's king. And in chapters 4 through 15, he demonstrates he is indeed the king that Israel has been waiting for. Now, if you look at chapter 16, verse 21, from that time on when Yeshua was proclaimed as Israel's messianic king, We're then told that he began to explain to his disciples his need to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. If chapters 1 to 4 deal with the proclamation, this is Israel's king. If chapters 4 through 16 or so tell us of how the king manifests himself in a kingly way. Well then chapters 17 through the end tells us what the king does in order to enable his subjects to enter his kingdom. He gives his life a ransom for many. Matthew's good news is about the king who has come. And these three sections explain his kingship to us. The Sermon on the Mount tells us about the teachings of the king, how his subjects are to live as empowered by the king himself. Now, I want to show you one other thing. This is all sort of background and foundation for what we're about to to embark upon. But look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at chapter 7, where he concludes, look at verse 28. It says, When Yeshua had finished saying these things... The crowds were amazed at his teaching. Take a look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, After Yeshua had finished instructing his disciples. Take a look at chapter 13 and look at verse 53. When Yeshua had finished these parables... He moved on from there. 
Take a look at chapter 19, verse 1. When Yeshua had finished saying these things. And then take a look at, at chapter 20, 26, verse 1. When Yeshua had finished saying all these things. Isn't that kind of cool? Same phrase Matthew uses five times. Because there are five teaching sections that Messiah gives to us. The first teaching session is what we're referring to as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And what is it about? It is about how we are to live in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom that Messiah himself will bring. Look at the verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so the whole address is about the significance of the king's kingdom. And how we are to live in that kingdom. As subjects of the king. Look at chapter 10. In chapter 10, where we looked at 11.1, after he finished instructing. Here's the second section of teachings Messiah gives. And his teachings are given to his disciples whom he sends out, not to the Gentiles, not to the Samaritans, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And what are they to proclaim? Look at verse 9. And as you grow, go preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. When you look at chapter 13, the ending line, as I said, verse 53, when he had finished these parables, what are these parables about? They're about the kingdom of heaven. Look what he says in verse 24. Yeshua told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. Look at verse 31. The parable is that he told them is the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Look at verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. And he goes on to speak of the kingdom of heaven even in verse 41. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Look at verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Look at verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. That's really fabulous, really, how this is so ordered. And so after he finished the Sermon on the Mount, which he tells us how to live in the kingdom, after he finished instructing the disciples about their mission, which was to proclaim the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After he tells us these parables that explain to us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. When he had finished saying these things, what things? Look at 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples began to ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And look what he says in verse 2. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become as a child. So his message, his fourth message, I think it's his fourth, is about the kingdom of heaven and how and who enters in. Ones who are like children. And look at chapter 26. When he concludes in verse 1, when Yeshua had finished saying this, what was he telling them? He was telling them, number one, in chapter 23, 
Those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven, those are the hypocrites. Woe unto you hypocrites. And then in chapters 24 and 25, he answers the question of the disciples, when can we expect the kingdom to come? And he tells us the events that will precede the coming of the kingdom in its full manifestation. Five teachings on the kingdom of heaven. Now go back to Matthew chapter 5. Just sort of setting the stage. This is kind of neat stuff. Because if we're to understand its meaning, we have to understand its context. And if we're going to try to apply these truths to our lives, we have to know and understand what Messiah was trying to communicate. When you look at chapter 5, look at the parallel between the Jewish people at Mount Sinai and what transpires here on the Sermon on this mountain. Notice the throngs of people are gathering around Yeshua. In the wilderness, the throngs of the people of Israel, who were a mixed company, remember, came out of Egypt. Some Egyptians came with the Israelites. And around the mountain, like here in the Sermon on the Mount, they are gathered. A crowd forms. And like Moses, who went up on the mountain, so Yeshua goes up on a mountain. There are differences, of course. But I can't help but think that Matthew is making a parallel. And just as Moses is going to give us five books of the law, the Torah, so Yeshua is going to give us five teachings that are meant to help us understand how to enter God's kingdom. Now, the very first statement he makes is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word blessed is a very interesting word. We use that word in funny ways. Often when I go out to dinner with someone, they'll say, Gary, you're paid to do this, so why don't you bless the food? And it was years ago, I'd always think about, how does one actually bless the food? You know, like what do you do to the food to bless it? But that's not what we mean when we say bless the food. The word bless there means to consecrate the food, to set it apart from food as such, because this is the food that God has granted to us at this time to be nourished by so as to serve him. So when we talk about blessing things, what we really mean is we're setting things apart in a special sort of way. So in Annapolis, there was always a day when they blessed the fleet of boats that would go out, set it apart that there's no accidents that happen out on the bay or whatever it might be. Sometimes we talk about blessing God. I thought about that as well. How does one like bless God? <laughs> you know, how do you bless him? But the word bless there means to honor God. So when we talk about blessing him, we mean to honor him. And how can we honor him? There's no greater way of honoring him than obeying him and doing his will. But that's not what Yeshua means here at all. He doesn't mean to set apart or to honor. 
But the Hebrew word ashray means to be happy, to be joyful, to be content, to be at peace, to be sort of welcoming of things. And so what he's telling us is how to be happy. So how can we be happy people? (laughs) Again, if we look at Yeshua, he was the most happy individual on earth. Now, he never told a joke that I know of. But he was happy because he was content, satisfied, and at peace with doing the will of God. Even the book of Hebrews says that in going to the cross, he went to the cross because of the joy that was set before him. What is your cross that is set before you? And can you pursue it with joy, knowing that God is being obeyed in the process? It's a tough thing to think about. But that's what Yeshua was able to be and to do. Pursue the most wretched of experiences, separation from his father for all of eternity. Forget about the physical endurance. He did with the joy set before him because he knew he was doing God's will and he knew that many would be benefited by what he was about to encounter. Encounter. Yeshua tells us the first way to enjoy and experience happiness, interestingly enough, is by recognizing our poverty of spirit. Is by realizing how wretched we are. Sort of like the song Amazing Grace, what a wretched man I am, or whatever the line is. But it starts by realizing that. And let me show you this in the scriptures as I just bring this to a close. Look at the Psalms. Look at Psalm 32. uh, 32. And in Psalm 32, David writes, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are forgiven. Are covered. Happy is the one who knows his poverty of spirit, because once we recognize our poverty of spirit, we then realize the need we have. It is not until we realize that how alienated from God we are, how unlike the kinds of people God would have, have us to be, until we realize. Just how poor we are apart from God's saving grace. We cannot be happy in the, the way that the Bible speaks of them. So we think we'll be happy if we have enough money to pay all of our bills. And we don't have to worry about them. But the truth of the matter is, there may be an element of pressure that is removed. But there is not the experience of great happiness in the fullest sense of the word. Because at the end of our days, it doesn't matter what you've accumulated, we cannot take it with us. Some people think that happiness will come if I have enough letters after my last name. If I have enough degrees on my wall. In other words, if I have enough recognition and prestige... If I'm honored and respected enough, well, then I will finally be happy. 
Some people think that they'll be happy when they have enough power and control and influence. Those are the things the world tells us will make us happy. But Messiah is telling us the thing that will ultimately lead to our happiness is recognizing, first of all, our great need. So the need can be met. And so the psalmist is telling us, David is telling us in 32, chapter 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was zapped as in the heat of summer. And why was God oppressing him so much? Look what he tells us. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. Most of us want to avoid struggles. Most of us would want to avoid pain. But God uses it to remind us of our greatest need. We are very poor unless God's filling presence fills us. And so he says, Then I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover up my iniquity. I confessed it. I confessed my transgressions. And you forgave the guilt of my life. That's where happiness comes from. When we know we are right with God. Now, time is afoot. We can't go through all of it. But you can look at Psalm 34. When he talks about being poor, he doesn't mean being poor materialistically. He means being poor spiritually. And in Psalm 34, verse 6, this poor man called and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. Psalm 69, verse 17 or so says the same thing. The recognition of one's poverty of spirit Need for forgiveness, the experience of that forgiveness, and the guilt is dispersed, and joy is the result. That was my experience when I invited the Lord into my life. When I think back to that time, and I was alone in my room, not wanting my parents to see anything, and I kneeled down at my bed. Actually, the truth of the matter is, I kneeled down in the bathroom, closed the door, took the hamper, it was my altar. And I prayed, I said, Lord, if you could do something with this life, you can have it. Because I was doing nothing with it. I was doing something, but it was nothing. And when I lifted my head, it was like, why did I waste those 17 years of my life? What was wrong with me that I never saw it before? For the first time, I felt like I arrived where I was supposed to be. And there was a sense of joy like I've never experienced before. It had nothing to do with my location, my geographical place. Had nothing to do with my finances. That didn't change. Had nothing to do with what I looked like, what anyone thought of me, or what I had attained. It had only to do with what God had done to me in that moment. And what did he do? He filled me with himself. Now, I read about this, and that is that if you take a bottle, 
and you submerge it in water, in order for the bottle to sink, the air must escape. And those are the bubbles that you see. And then once the bottle fills with water, it's gone. But you can have a bottle that is submerged, that still has its air in it, that, well, I'm saying this all wrong now, but (laughs) you can't have a bottle submerged that has its air in it, but it won't stay submerged. So if you take a bottle and you put a cork in it, you could submerge it, but it'll keep bouncing and coming back to the top. You need to remove the cork that the air might be released. Our problem is our refusal to remove the corks in our life for God's spirit to fill us to the fullest. We still want some of that air, whatever it might be, and we won't let go of it. And then we wonder why the Spirit of God cannot take residence in our lives the way we would like Him to do so. This is what Messiah says. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to know how poor you are. And once you know how poor in spirit you are, you need to cry out to the only one who can fill us and correct our poverty and make us rich. And he will make us rich with himself. And when he makes us rich with himself, yours is the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is not about doing things that will get you to heaven. It's not about doing things that will make you right with God. It's about doing one thing in which God makes you right with him. And as a consequence, the things he talks about here and teaches becomes a possibility and a reality, not only when the kingdom of heaven dawns in all of its fullness, but even now in your life at present. Because wherever the king reigns, there is something of his kingdom present. Is he reigning in your life? Is he filling your life? Are you removing the cork so all the garbage can escape? And are you allowing the Spirit of God to fill you that you would walk in his ways? It is not walking in his ways that will enable the Spirit of God to enter into you. It is the entrance of the Spirit of God into us that enables us to walk in His ways. It starts by admitting our poverty of spirit and our need for Him. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. They can't be forgiven unless you acknowledge them before Him. The great thing is you don't have to acknowledge all of them. Because between me and you, we don't even remember them all. We don't even know them all. And even some of the things we think are commendable before God, he's saying they're not very commendable at all. So we're all kind of confused. But because of the grace of God, we don't have to have our I's dotted and our T's crossed. We just need to say, Lord, 
I need you. And I need you in so many ways, I have no idea. But I need you. And I need you to forgive me. And I need you to accept me. That I might be whom you would have me to be. And if we are what he would have us to be, then happy are you. And whatever happens around us doesn't matter. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your marvelous word to us. Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because you're ready to forgive when the sin is brought before you. You are ready to forgive when we say, Lord, I am in need of your grace. You are ready to forgive when we say, Lord, I am sorry. Make me your own. You are ready to forgive because you so love the world. You love each and every one of us. That you gave your son. That whoever believes in him and believes that what he has done can take care of our sin would not perish but would have everlasting life, would enter the kingdom of heaven. May that be true for each and every one of us. And if anyone here has never invited Messiah into their hearts, you can do that right now. And there's no sense in waiting. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.